0: This is On Being's Unheard Cut. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Tammy Simon. She is publisher, CEO, and founder of Sounds True. I spoke with her on April 4th, 2013 from the studios of APM in Saint Paul, Minnesota. She was at the studios of Colorado Public Radio in Boulder. Download the MP3 of that produced show with Tammy Simon at onbeing.org. Are you eating as we speak?
1: Um, well, it's an, I had two big gulps right before. Uh-huh. Um, it's, but I have it close at hand. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. And it smells now like tuna fish. This, <laughs> this is my version of small talk. You know, the immediate, <laughs> important right. things. So it smells like tuna fish in this small studio.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, I'm imagining that. Yes, Chris. We're ready to go. Great. Okay. So we don't even have to do. What did you have for breakfast? Oh, we got the tuna fish. Okay. 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 I am actually curious. What do you eat for breakfast?
1: Uh, well, you know, I didn't eat anything this morning, so the scratch and sniff is coming up empty, which is why I wanted to talk about the tuna fish so we <laughs> really get the the smell communicated through the microphone here. Okay.
0: Well, actually tuna fish, you know how radio is so great for uh what's visual, what's uh, s- yeah. sensual? So I mean tuna to- yeah. I absolutely have tuna fish in my in my nostrils now. Thank okay. you for that. Yeah. You're welcome. I'll try to balance it out with my mint tea that I'm drinking. All right. Um well, I'm just so glad that we are here finally. You know, I've been thinking about this for years and then we met at that conference and uh, it took a while, but it's just great. And it's been great to uh, to really try to immerse in your work. And um, and I want to tell you also, I, I, I mean, I've listened to your podcast over the years or your, the things that you stream on the side and, you know, I've partaken of Sounds True in many ways, but um, I also really enjoyed... Uh, I guess one of your colleagues l- helped us get into this, some blogs that we wrote a couple yeah. of years ago, and that was really helpful to me um, to kind of get to, kn- to get to know you on that level. So I maybe I may be quoting from that as we go. So, but I want to start with um, something I, I actually haven't seen anywhere. Um, I wonder uh, w- was there a, was there a spiritual background to your childhood or or spiritual identity to your childhood?
1: I would say mostly loneliness, which is not exactly a spiritual identity, but maybe a lack of connection. Hmm. And even though I was very well loved by my family and had a very good education and maybe from the outside looked like a fairly happy and well-adjusted person, on the inside there was this huge sense of a crevasse between what I was really thinking about and caring about, and being able to find people to talk to. And sometimes I think that Sounds True was a response, actually, Mm. to the loneliness that I felt, because I wanted to talk about really deep spiritual questions I had. So it wasn't that there were some great realizations as a young person, but it was more this aching sense of what is going on here? Right. What is actually happening? And will anybody talk to me about that? About those big questions that I feel when I get into bed at night.
0: Well, did you? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I haven't been able to perfectly trace that that trajectory. So you you left college. Did you had you discovered meditation, or I mean, was there any meditation? Were, were there any of these traditions uh, in your life? Did you know about them before you went away? Yeah.
1: Well, when I went to college, to Swarthmore College, I was lucky that in my sophomore year, I met someone who was there on a Fulbright scholarship, a professor named Gunapala Dharmasuri, And he was from Sri Lanka, huh. and he was teaching a course, he was just there for one year, on existentialism and Buddhism. And so, of course, I signed up for that right away, and it was in that sophomore year, in that course, that he actually taught all of the students how to meditate So that was my first introduction to meditation. Mm. And what happened to me in that sophomore year was that I started looking at everything else that was happening in academia through a lens of a critique of first-person experience, meditation experience. And uh, things started looking stranger and stranger, hence my exit Uh, from college, and my travels in Sri Lanka, India, and Nepal, where I deeply became engaged in the practice of meditation.
0: Mm -hmm. And then you came back to the States. Did you come back to Colorado at that point?
1: Well, no. So at that point, I uh, came back to Pennsylvania, where Swarthmore College was located. And, you know, my parents were very invested that I graduate from an accredited school. You know, my father said, that's your ticket, that's your ticket Mm -hmm. to the rest of your life. (laughs) And my attitude was, wherever I'm going, that's not the ticket they're going to require. And, of course, that sounded naive to my mother and my father. But there was something in me that had gotten lit on fire that I had to follow. And that took me away from academic study. And I ended up coming to Boulder Colorado because I wanted to look deeply at the question of uh, the psychology of meditation and mm. the place that I could study that was at Naropa University and so that's what Got brought it. me out to Colorado.
0: Okay. Um, and somewhere in uh, I believe in this blog that you wrote for a few years a, a few years ago, you um, you talked about you were you know you you were working as a waitress you were you were doing some radio and, and you, you talked about you were also praying. And that th- th- this became kind of this leap, this leap for you, and then kind of a life of leaping followed. And it, and, and I think you did use that that language of prayer, which surprised me a little bit because I so associate you so. Uh, not your work is not strictly associated with with Buddhism, but but personally, I associate you so much with uh, with that tradition in which prayer is not necessarily part of the core vocabulary. Although I guess it is in Tibetan Buddhism, isn't it?
1: Well, certainly in me, prayer is a really, really essential way that I relate to the world. You could say, for me, it's a cry of -hmm. the heart. And in a sense, even I think as that lonely child, I was praying then too. And in that sense, something was happening inside my heart that was a reaching out and a reaching up and a reaching saying, uh, here's something inside that I can barely give words to, but it's a deep longing, and it's the most important thing to me, and I want to bring it forward and lay it down right at the the altar, if you will, right at the ground. Here's what I need to lay down, because it's what matters most to me. So I think this prayer... In my heart, and being willing to declare that—that's really been a a critical way that each unfolding in my life has progressed.
0: And and what was it that compelled you there? You were there in your early twenties. You know, what you did with this is you started a business, you started a company, Um, and I think that might look like an untraditional response to the spiritual experience you just described.
1: Well, I wasn't necessarily looking to start a company. My prayer was, God, and the use of that word may also uh, uh, surprise you, but it's uh, a living word inside my heart. God, I'm willing to do your work. Please show me what it is and the the wording of that was quite careful the willing word was the most important word because I didn't want whatever work that I did in the world to be willful I didn't want it to be something I was pushing at the same time I didn't want to be will-less like I'm just lying here like a lump or a log I wanted to be no I'm willing I'm willing to do whatever it takes to do your work in the world please show me what it is and you know, it turned out to be a quote-unquote business, but it actually took me quite quite a while to even realize I was in business. Okay. In fact, this may uh, sound strange to you, but it's true. Which is, after uh, starting, sounds true, and uh, running it really as an as an offering of what I cared about for several years, the local newspaper did a story on the company, and they told me that it would be published. And when I went to look in the newspaper to see where the story was, I looked in the lively arts section, (laughs) because I thought that what I was doing had something to do with art and social change and expression and education. Mm. And it took me a while to see that it was actually on the front page of the business section. And so I was that surprised that nothing in me had this idea of, I want to go into business. I think that I wasn't particularly employable at the time. So the idea of working for myself seemed logical. But it wasn't it really had nothing to do with being, quote unquote, in business.
0: Mm. I mean, you were making a living, right, which was something you needed to do, I suppose. Yeah, I wanted
1: to support myself. And uh, when I was uh, 21, my father died and I inherited a small amount of money. And uh, one of the things that somebody said to me was use that money such that you generate more money with it don't just spend it and I thought well that's smart and I also as I said was basically unemployable and I thought well I'll do this two year experiment in being self-employed and if it works wonderful and if not I won't really be particularly worse off than I am right now I'll go look for a job hmm.
0: so so this was um what year was this this was in in 1980s right are we in the are we in the
1: early yeah. 80s yeah yeah so- sounds true started in 1985 okay
0: and it's so interesting to think about how this part of life, in particular—I mean, so much has changed in these decades—but this part of life, this encounter with spirituality, um, in this culture, has evolved since that time. Um, but, but I wonder if you could, if you could talk a little bit. I and mean, I'm sure we're going to explore that f- this whole time. But what? What were what were people looking for or reading? What were you? I mean, what were you meeting in yourself, but also in the culture um, that that is different from now? You know, what do we need to recall about where we how we got here?
1: Well, you know, twenty eight years ago something like meditation was considered something that uh, Hare Krishnas or people in cults were yeah. engaged in. <laughs> it was certainly not not part of our uh, vocabulary, our mainstream vocabulary. The word mindfulness wasn't part of our vocabulary. Yoga was just kind of beginning. And it was before all of the yoga DVDs and the whole yoga movement exploded. And then after the explosion of people's interest in yoga, now we see this interest in meditation and and mindfulness and the introduction of the neuroscience to support these different spiritual practices. Right, right. So that was all off the map. And instead it was, oh, people who are, are uh, fresh back from India and are wearing weird robes and carrying beads are interested in this kind of thing. Yeah. And was there much... Um
0: what did you? What were your first products and services? What did you start out with?
1: Yeah, in the mid '80s, probably our most popular first product was working with Ramdas and mm-hmm. creating a, a program cultivating the heart of compassion.
0: And this was audio. Was, was it audio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And later on, you started doing publishing as well. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, our our, our business expanded actually into many different formats, including book publishing, but video and healing music from around the world and mm-hmm. now online courses and events as well.
0: And, I mean, there's now such an explosion of reading material, but I, I think um, that in the, in the 1980s th- there also just wasn't so much of that. Is that right? I, I mean, I'm
1: uh, I think I'm not that's sure true. Myself. I think there, there, were, there were a lot of books published, and part of the reason... That when I began Sounds True, I called it Sounds True, and I focused on audio teachings, was that it seemed to me that that was the place that there was a real opening Hmm. and a real need. And what I also discovered in my own life was that when it came to understanding spiritual ideas, when it came to really bringing people into a deep place of inner listening— that audio was a fantastic medium and that it delivered actually something that books uh, uh, didn't do as well or as directly. So if somebody's guiding you in a process of coming deeper and deeper into contact with your breathing and with your heartbeat and with the felt sense of space inside the body, there's a way that that can be done through a guided audio presentation, much differently than when you're reading text on a book and you have to filter it through your eyes and then kind of speak it to yourself. It's several steps removed. So I was quite excited about how spiritual teachings could be delivered through audio, and that was really the seed that began, Sounds True.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I love reading, but you're right. Reading is cerebral, uh, there's there's some more uh, direct, uh, both um, emotional and um, sensory, and even human connection when when there's a voice involved. Do you think is that? W-
1: well, for me, it's certainly true, and, and I do think that there are different kinds of learners, and that some people learn more kinesthetically, mm-hmm. some people learn more visually, and some people are auditory. And I definitely think that I'm an auditory. Learner, and that there's a a good chunk of the population that also Mm -hmm. uh, really gets tremendous value out of that type of input. I think there's a nuanced quality to the sound of the human voice that can communicate some of the nuances of inner discovery Mm -hmm. perhaps better than anything else, than words which are slightly removed, because the sound of the voice carries our feeling state, and there's a way that a listener can commune with the sound of someone's voice, and also the spaces that are in the voice. And in those spaces, especially when we're exploring the depths of inner experience, there's a type of induction Or beat that can happen, and I think that audio is the best medium for that.
0: Mm. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I'd never quite thought about it that way before. One, one thing, one um, impulse that I find running through the interviews you do is um, a, 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 a fascination with, you know, how and why different people apprehend these kinds of teachings i mean it really follows on what you were just saying and but not not even not just in terms of the medium but um <clears throat> how we how we're you know we're able to integrate wisdom into our lives or fail to integrate it or or find it and then lose it <laughs> and 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 what you know, and, and and driving at you know what, what happens when, when real transformation becomes possible? What does that mean and, and what makes that possible? Um, I don't know. That's just something I noticed. I wonder if, if you also yeah. feel that that's yeah. there for you in a big way.
1: Well, There's a lot in what you're pointing to here. Uh, you know, one of the things that has been so interesting to me is... I uh, have the opportunity to witness spiritual teachers at their best when they're teaching, when they're open, when they're communicating what they care the most about, and in a sense when they're in their biggest, most expanded selves. But then I also have the opportunity to work with those same teachers during a contract negotiation (laughs) or during a uh, disappointment about a misprint on the back cover of a book mm. or a missed publicity opportunity or all kinds of things that happen in the world of publishing. And one of the things that I, I've really taken a lot of curiosity about is how complicated human beings are in terms of this same person can deliver some of the most beautiful teachings in one way and really be uh, quite challenged in Certain kinds of relationships and certain kinds of communication uh, uh, dynamics and how to understand all of that and how we can all get more real about that and get behind the curtain, if you will, mm. because I think when we do that, we stop having this idealization about what The spiritual process of transformation is and about who spiritual teachers are. And when we drop some of that idealization, we can actually start embracing all of ourselves more. We can look at ourselves and say, oh, I'm not this perfected being either. But neither is this person that I thought was. They're also on a journey. They're also growing and learning in different parts of their lives, just like me. Right. And it allows us to soften in the way that we look at ourselves. And it equalizes the fact and lets us see that we're all on a journey of evolution and development. Right. And that that
0: insight, that that realization that even for the great teachers, because they are human beings— That journey remains messy and fitful and complex, right, to the very end. And that that's that's the nature, that's the very nature of it.
1: Yeah, and we can stop holding ourselves to some unrealizable uh, standard, some unrealizable uh, yardstick, and instead really just be okay with where we are, knowing that we're growing and learning and receiving feedback. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. I think for many people, um, I mean, the '80s was also the height, I believe, of, of new age. I mean, as that phrase entered American culture, and I think that for many people, rightly or wrongly, it was associated with uh, you know this phrase I remember hearing a Christian theologian use once, which which I, I resonate with a bit—a spiritual promiscuity. You know, I'll take a little bit of that, a little bit of this, um, kind of dabbling. In spirituality and dabbling in many traditions, um, and I, you know, what's interesting about Sounds True and what you do is, you know, you present a very very broad and deep range of different kinds of teachings and teachers and insights. Um, but it's it's not dabbling at the same time, and and and, and I also sense in your own. Uh, path in your own journey that you have a great, obviously great appreciation for great teachers of many traditions, but that at some point you also, as you've continued, it seems to me to really push at what does transformation mean, and not just in a not not in an abstract sense, but in your own life. Um, that, that there's also always been this um, move in you to dig deeper and deeper. And, and to, mm-hmm. the, to the point that you have a you now have a long term teacher. When um, mm-hmm. was that? A, was that a turn for you at some point um, that was not there in you earlier on?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think in my own path, I followed each step of the way and continue to follow where the goods are to just put it in colloquial language, where the energy is, where the intensity is, where I think I can really learn and grow. And I met a teacher in the course of working at Sounds True who came in to record a series on Buddhist Tantra. And in the process of spending about two weeks in the studio together, I realized that he could help me with my meditation practice in a way that I really needed, and I wasn't looking for a uh, one particular path of practice, but the fact is, as I was sitting there with him, I had to tell the truth to myself, which was that I felt a little lost mm. at the time. and I felt that I hadn't been deepening in a way that I sensed was possible, and that I sensed through working closely with him and being trained that there would be something that could open up for me, and I wanted to do that.
0: And this was Reggie Ray.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. and this is Reggie Ray, who um, uh, studied for many years with Chogyam Trungpa a meditation teacher from Tibet and the founder of Naropa University. And yet I've continued to believe that there's no one recipe and no one path that is the quote-unquote way, God forbid, for everybody has to find what's true for them. Mm-hmm. And I uh, I recently did um, a wonderful interview with somebody who's working with several different spiritual paths simultaneously, and she also suffered a huge loss in her life— Um, the death of somebody very close to her. And I could see the total integrity of her path, which was putting several different things together. And I guess I feel in, in my heart that it's so important to let each person find the way that's true for them and for us to develop enough inner knowing, inner sensitivity a a real trust in ourselves that we can listen to that voice inside of us that says, this is what you need. Mm -hmm. You heard this person's voice. You read their book. You saw them. Or you discovered this practice. You started saying this mantra or you discovered this prayer or you started chanting in this way or journaling or writing. And you know there's something in it for you. You can taste it. You can smell it. Follow it. And trust yourself. Trust that you can put these pieces together and that you can see it unfold. And I think the key is that we have to be willing to tell ourselves the truth. We have to tell ourselves the truth when we know that we're a little lost and that we could go deeper, Hmm. when we know we need some discipline. In our lives, when we know that what we need perhaps isn't being offered by the tradition we've been practicing in, or when we have relationship challenges, and it seems like working with a therapist is really what's going to be required to get to the kind of material that seems to be keeping our hearts from fully expressing in the relationships we care the most about. And maybe it's not even being addressed in our spiritual practice and that we need something else. And I actually think people are so much more intelligent than uh, many spiritual traditions give give credit to this individual knowing and that often right. that we give credit to ourselves Right. even. To me, it's like we, we know what we want to eat. Do you know what I mean? It's that... <laughs> Close to us, you know. I know I loved smoked fish. There isn't anybody, anything can say. You know, it's going to change my mind about that. And I think that when it comes to meaning and what we really need to feed our heart, we know that too. But we keep looking outside for other people to tell us mm. instead of actually tuning in and saying, "You know, I'm going to go for it. Right. This feels right, or this doesn't feel right, and I'm going to get out of it."
0: Yeah. You. Um, I want to read something you. You said of Reggie Ray, your teacher. He said, "You said, you, you said he has a special gift for applying ancient traditions to the spiritual imperatives of modern people." and And I wonder what what you mean when you use you use that phrase, the spiritual imperatives of modern people. Perhaps it flows very much
1: from what you were just saying. Yeah. Well, well, interestingly, that's um, part of his bio. Uh, oh, okay. Statement. So mm-hmm. it's not so much something what I... Was it your um, one? Okay. Don't work, not my words, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I think that in the tradition that I've been training in now for the past 11 years, there is this sense that when we allow ourselves to deeply relax and open and we drop all the preconceptions about who we're supposed to be and the path that we're supposed to be on. You could say when we uh, rest in a type of openness or even emptiness, to use that word, when we allow ourselves to drop everything that is a position, but instead we're literally just being, that from that place of being there is a sense of an imperative that comes up and through us that wants to be expressed. And that imperative has a lot to do with our unique human life and our heart and how, when we allow ourselves to be open, our heart then has this sense of an inner direction. It wants to express. It wants to give. It wants to create. It wants to help the suffering world. So the spiritual imperatives of modern people, our world looks different than it ever has, of course. And there's so much pain in so many different places. And when we allow ourselves to actually be and listen very, very deeply, there is this sense of directionality or an inner imperative that surfaces. And then we have to have the uh, inner strength to stand in that imperative and act on it and voice it and respond to it and be in the world and let it flow through first our heart and then our hands and our voice and come out and express. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And part of the way you... You part of what you bring into the world and help bring into the world um towards that end are voices, teachings, conversations. And I, I was really struck in um, some writing you did about an interview you did with the poet David White, and you, you, you were you uh, were very much taken by a phrase he uses of the conversational nature of reality." And it struck me that that's also, there's an echo, there's a, there's a reflection of that in the interplay between your spiritual life and this, this part of the work you do. And, you know, I, I, I wonder what you've learned, like, uh, how would you talk about what you've learned in this conversational way you get at spirituality um, about the best way to bring that out authentically and richly and vividly, Um, and and so that that these ideas can also feel new to people and gripping in a way that maybe they
1: hadn't before. Well, this phrase, the conversational nature of reality, I think part of the reason that I uh, really loved David White using that phrase is, uh, you know, a lot of people— Um, talk about manifesting and how they're going to manifest this, that, or the other thing. And I noticed that I often felt quite uncomfortable with that notion. And when David White introduced this term, the conversational nature of reality, I thought that's more the way that I go about quote-unquote manifesting, which is something comes forward in me from this empty space that has an imperative inside of it, and then it gets expressed. But then there's a listening and a receiving. What is said back? What is coming back to me from the world, from the phenomenal world, meaning the people that I'm interacting with, meaning uh, responses to projects we're publishing or what, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. and that there's this dialogue then that's happening between what's coming up uh, with integrity inside of me and then the feedback from the phenomenal world and the interplay. So that's, that's really how that phrase um, struck me as important. Now, your question has to do, I think, something with what allows traditional teachings to be fresh and relevant in our world today And I think that it's when we come from a place inside of ourselves of what could be called uh, origin or source. And so things are original and have a sense of um, brilliance to them when they're not coming from anything that feels recycled or rehashed. But instead, there's a sense of getting deep below the surface. And then it's like we're contacting from deep below a geyser of something that's fresh energy versus something that's just being cut up and recycled concepts or ideas from somebody else. So that, I think, is the key to this sense of of freshness.
0: You've talked about having an allergy to ideas that are detached from experience or and and I, I've had this I mean I this is absolutely fundamental to my work too the to see what happens to these insights when they are attached when they when they are absolute when they're intertwined with humanity and human experience um, I mean what you just said was so beautiful could you mean could you give me an example of um, a person a conversation uh, a teaching that that you've encountered lately or that's on your mind that, that just, that illuminates that, that dynamic?
1: Well, here's one of the things that I think's interesting, which is sometimes when we're engaged in a, in a conversation, we think the thing that we're going to learn the most from is what somebody says. So we're listening to their words and we can read a transcript of it. But um, recently I gave a, a talk at a women's uh, event. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and they said, can I tell you what the most important part of your talk was? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know. Yeah, okay. And uh, she said it was when you, you paused. What were you doing? What was, what was happening? And, and I, then I paused again and I tried to remember. And uh, Reggie, the teacher that I work with, Uh, One of the things that he said to me recently was how in any situation, you can always ask the question, where's the emptiness in this? Where's the emptiness in this? And the reason I'm bringing this up in response to your question is that in that moment, in that talk, I was pausing and feeling, quote-unquote, the emptiness in the situation— And the person who was listening actually caught a spark Mm -hmm. in that moment that flew between us. And in any moment or situation where we find this gap, where we find this sense of Everything's not just one long sentence that isn't even punctuated, and sometimes our days feel like that. Yeah. They just, you know, we wake up, we know we have so much to do, and then we go to sleep at night. Okay, well, and whatever gaps set.
0: there are, we are filled. They're just filled for us,
1: right? Exactly. Yeah. And yet, it's in those moments where actually there's a, a quietude. That's when new life and fresh ideas can come through us. And into the situation. I think that's a lot actually where humor comes from, too. Some of the the greatest humorists because how do they come up with this stuff on the spot? It's not the rehearsed comedic monologue. It's something, you know, uh, unusual that's happening in that moment because there's a Swiss cheese like quality, if you will, to the way that they are in the moment. There's this openness, these gaps, these holes. And I think that's actually a way that we can be in situations. And then we become actually this uh, conduit for fresh ideas that are responsive, wholly responsive to the situation at hand, not rehearsed. So that's why the spiritual imperatives of modern people, what's the imperative of the actual situation I'm in? Right here,
0: right
1: right now, with this person or with this group that I'm talking to.
0: And you need those pauses or you need to make room for them in order to be doing that kind of discernment, don't you?
1: Yeah, and I think that's actually where the practice of meditation comes in, is that it trains us in resting in those pauses, Mm. starting to find them when they're there in-between thoughts, and then starting to actually dive in to that place of pause and then actually staying for longer and longer periods in that sense of stillness.
0: Another thing that sounds true, is a vehicle for, I think, is taking very ancient, Teachings and traditions in part mm, out of very much out of the containers they've been in traditionally I mean I, when you when you interviewed Reggie Ray your your teacher um, you're you're doing a project with him what is this a thirty two is it the thirty-two,
1: Thir- thirty-three CDs, thirty-three CDs? Mahat- yeah. Okay, it's, it's definitely a, the Guinness Book of World it, Records, at least for sounds true in terms of the length of an audio training program. Yeah. And,
0: and and I and I kind of got the sense that uh, you were circling around with him that it, it's not precisely that these things would have been secret before, but 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 you are you are you are putting into technology. Um, teachings that have not been accessible in that way and and maybe also really crossing the boundary of things that were held close and held private and secret. It's it's interesting. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the questions, of course, we have to ask ourselves is why were certain teachings held secret or private and was it for the benefit of the students or was it for the benefit of some other agenda of some kind Uh, I also think we have to recognize that in the time that we're in, there is, at least it appears to me, a readiness in many people because of the amount of teachings that have been widely available and the acceleration that has happened in our own learning and development. And also, I would say, just to get a little woo-woo here, just a sense of... uh, uh, overall accelerated growth and development that seems to be the case inside many, many people, that there's a readiness to hear certain ideas. And I also, and this is a really um, important idea, I think a lot of teachings are quote-unquote self-secret. So what I mean by that is, hmm. even as I'm sitting here and I'm talking about emptiness and what does it mean, where's the emptiness in a situation, That I'm sure there. Could be somebody listening who's like, What the heck is she talking about? I have absolutely right. no idea. Like, what is this? I just don't get it. So it's not like there's any um, harm in offering, in my view, teachings that people might not uh, understand because the vocabulary might not work, because they just won't care, actually. <laughs> it won't be relevant to who they are. Uh huh. <laughs> Um,
0: and so, you know, something else that I'd really like to get into with you is, um, translating this commitment you have to, and this is, this is one way I would, I would describe, um, I think one of the passions that drives you. And that is there in the most authentic and exciting spiritual energy of our time, which is this drive to link the inner and the outer, um, and how you, I'd love to t- hear, hear more, about how you make that link real also in a corporate culture. Because whether you, whether you meant to create a business or not, when you were in your early 20s, you have created a very successful business now. So, yeah. and I know, you're, I know you're intentional about this. So just, you know, kind of talk me through how you do that, how that yeah. is manifest.
1: Yeah. Well, for me, uh, if the inner and the outer are not in an embrace, then I'm not sure how to live my life in a way that's meaningful and makes sense. So it's not like I can be uh, a loving person on the meditation cushion and then walk into work and exploit my employees and make business deals that are unfair to other people. I mean, the idea that there could be a separation is actually um, uh, just completely... Uh, unfathomable to me. It doesn't make doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. doesn't it? But
0: as you know, it happens. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it happens all the time. I mean, that link is not, in it's not just in, it's not in one spiritual tradition or another. We, I and mean, I think in this culture, in fact, for a number of generations at least, we've kind of encouraged people to compartmentalize this part of their lives.
1: Yeah, I guess what I'm saying is instead of saying how do I make the link, I would ask a different question, which is how do people separate these things? Right, right. How do they do that? Uh Because to me it's not about taking two separate things and linking them together. It's about saying I'm a human being who wants to give and live in integrity and have enough money to support my life and to live a sustainable and beautiful and abundant life. How do do I do all that? They were never separate to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I'm not linking them. I'm just wanting to live a good life and a life of service um, and a life of beauty. And so that, to me, is actually the starting point. And then when it comes to, well, how does that happen in a business, I think uh, it's having realistic goals for the business, uh, not taking – investment money into the company that has a different agenda than what I just described, because then there would be a different set of drivers. You know, right now there's 85 employees at Sounds True. We've been in business for almost three decades, and we took it on as an experiment, and it's still an experiment. And the experiment is there are all of these tremendous virtues verities that the world traditions point to, that we can live in our individual lives? How do we live it collectively in our organizational lives? How do we do that? How do we make sure that just really simple ideas of respect and honesty and uh, caring for each other, caring for our customers, how do we do that that's our experiment. We want to do it because then the process of our work will be consonant, coherent with the products of our work. And that's what we want. We don't want to publish these wonderful teachings and then come in and be living, uh, you know, in contradiction to that. We want it to all feel coherent. So that's, that's been our yeah. experiment.
0: And so what, are, so what are some of the, the practicalities of, of that experiment, what you do?
1: Uh, You know, um, I've learned a lot uh, from the conscious capitalist movement. And one of the ways that they've articulated something that we were naturally already doing at Sounds True that I quite like, which is making sure that all of the stakeholders of the business are uh, considered when you make decisions And in the running of the company. So that means that, yes, uh, the employees are important, but the customers and the vendors and even um, the earth seven generations beyond, and I would say in the business that we're in, uh, that even the ideas themselves, the integrity of the ideas, that mm. they're, the ideas get to be a stakeholder. Mm. They get to be respected so that they're not dumbed down or diluted or dissected in such a way that the, I, the, the teachings have become um, compromised in some way. Mm. So that's where you have something like you know a 33 cd set well that's what it took right. in order to be able to communicate this quite sophisticated round of teachings okay let's do it because the idea this this teaching itself is a stakeholder in our in our business in a sense so looking at things from that perspective a business makes different kinds of decisions so that's a core idea honoring mm-hmm. all of the stakeholders you know i also think just something that's hard for people in general and it's been hard at sounds true is how do we learn to work with each other in a relationship where everybody is really being heard and where we're learning to collaborate where we're bringing uh, emotional intelligence into the workplace this is hard stuff yeah you know it's it's hard stuff for any two people in a relationship, right. you know, yeah. to, to, to figure it out, let alone for groups of people. And, you know, it's taken a lot of, of training. We've had to bring in outside trainers to help us. But I think it's holding this value that we value the actual moment-to-moment process of our work. And we're going to keep working on it. And it's going to require us to grow as individuals because we're going to be caught where we're defensive, or we're going to be caught accusing somebody of something, and we're going to have to develop that skill of apologizing and listening to feedback and learning to say things different ways. And so, it's an ongoing commitment. Mm-hmm. Um.
0: This is just, and then you also. I mean, this is this is more whimsical, but I, I I think it also is. It's certainly also part of this philosophy. You have a bring your dog to work
1: policy, right? People can no, bring no, that. no. You don't have to bring your. You don't <laughs> you have don't to. But have you to. Can, what is it? You, you, can. you can come. You can be a dogless person and come to work. It sounds true. <laughs> you can be a cat lover. You can. You can. It's probably you probably wouldn't want to work at the company if you didn't like animals because there's quite a lot of free floating dog hair. But yeah. Uh, yeah it's you know it's just a sort of simple welcome invitation and you know i often say that the dogs humanize the workplace mm-hmm. and that is what it feels like because people stop and say oh my god oh my, you know they 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 immediately move into this place of uh petting mm-hmm. an animal and connecting and not being in such a rush once again it's a way to create that pause that we spoke about that punctuation in our day and suddenly an adorable animal is the one that's interrupting this sense of i have all these really important things to do and i don't have time (laughs) for that well yeah you do you do have time to take your dog out and in fact i hope you will take your dog out and, in that process, you'll get some fresh air and take a short walk and have many of the benefits of a cigarette break without a cigarette <laughs> that's
0: right um you've written um about three things you found useful in and you put it this way: creating a spaciousness at work and in life and I want to ask you about these because they're 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 unusual. The way you phrased it is unusual and it's intriguing so it was attending to physical sensations, bringing attention to the back of the body, and beginning meetings with silence. So I would like to talk about each of those. Attending to physical sensations. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I spend a lot of my uh, work day in meetings, uh, which is probably what a lot of people do who have office jobs, and so meeting after meeting after meeting. And, of course, uh, I can get agitated, depending on the topic at hand and who in the meeting is talking and how they 're addressing the topic and so, how can I uh, open up a bit and relax, not cut the person off? I used to be a terrible interrupter, and now i 'd say i 'm just a an averagely terrible interrupter, <laughs> but not the you know And so how can I, this this thing, create more space so that in the meeting, everybody gets a chance to express themselves and people don't feel rushed? Because actually, we'll have better results if there isn't a sense of people feeling uh, pressured. and I mean, the actual conversation can come to a more intelligent point. And so paying attention to physical sensations, often what I do is I'll pay attention to uh, my hands, uh, the way my fingers are clasped together or the bottom Mm. of my feet and the way my feet feel touching the floor. And when I pay attention to the physical sensations, I can notice if I'm clenching. And normally a very tense and interruptive comment comes from a tense and clenching body. And so if I can just breathe deeply, paying attention to the physical sensations and let them flow in the body and feel the sense of my feet on the ground quite grounded, calm, my hands aren't clenched into a fist in any way, the physical sensations start to move, and it's actually quite pleasant. And what I notice is that when I do that, it creates a space for other people to come forward instead of me just being in my clench fist driver Mm -hmm. mode Mm -hmm. so so that's what i mean by paying attention to physical sensations and looking for tension finding the places of tension in the body and then relaxing those places breathing in to those places and creating actual somatic space within me Mm -hmm. to receive other people Now, this idea of going into the back of the body. Yeah, bringing attention to the back of the body. What's that about? That's something I learned specifically uh, from Reggie Ray in the meditation training. And it was so helpful to me in meditation practice and also in meetings and in every situation really a, a long business dinner that's going on for <laughs> four hours and what I've noticed is that I come into the front of the body so that means when I say come into it means like my energy my attention is more forward mm. and there's even a sense of kind of leaning forward and it's the sense of like pushing my agenda and there is a somatic correlate to that energetic of pushing forward and I've got something to say and here's how we should do it and I know the right way. All of that comes from being in the front half, if you will, of the body and pushing forward. It's going to be this way. And I notice when I bring my attention back, so it's just sort of in front of the spine or even further back, 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 there's actually this creation of room, once again, to receive other people. And the idea is that our somatic architecture, meaning how we are in our body, actually creates a state of being that communicates so much to other people. So you might notice that, you know, with certain people, you just feel they can receive you in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I just Mm -hmm. I want to tell you my whole life story. And other people, there's like there's no space. There's no room. They don't have any room inside. You don't even want to tell them anything. And this going into the back, back of the body is one of the things that um, I found really uh, has helped me create room for other people. And That's, then uh, do, you know, yeah, just,
0: do, do. before we before we go on to the next one, it, yeah. it, it, it's almost I, I don't know if it's the opposite of leaning in right. There's suddenly this new catchword in the culture from Sheryl Sandberg, um, yeah. another woman, a, a female business leader. Um, and I and I actually wanted to ask you about this, but I mean i mean, you know almost just physically, visually, when I think about bringing your attention to the back of the body, it's it's a different posture. <laughs> Yeah. or is it? I mean how are, I'm curious about how you respond to it. Well, and of course we that. need
1: we need both. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you need to lean into a situation mm-hmm. and bring yourself forward and express yourself and that's really important. I think what I found and maybe this is just being a kind of driving basically dominating person, if you will. I needed to learn how to lean back. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, here I am in the meeting, I'm uh, the publisher of the company, the founder of the company, everything I say has more weight than what everybody else is going to say. And if on top of it, I'm uh, leaning forward and doing most of the talking, then there's no room for me to actually learn and hear the intelligence of everybody else in the room. And there's no room, as I was describing, for this quality of fresh emptiness, for the pause, for the gap to be there. And I I want to create the space for that gap, because I think it's in the gap that the magic happens, that these completely unexpected, uh, unknown, uh, unthought of, unprecedented things occur. So I'm interested in doing everything I can to create gap space. Mm,
0: mm. All right. And the third thing was beginning meetings with silence.
1: Yeah, that's something that's really caught on at Sounds True, and we call it a good minute. And we start our meetings with a a minute of silence. And, you know, we present it in such a way that it's not like you have to be doing anything in particular in that minute. So you don't have to be meditating in some formal way or uh, it's a way to introduce a break so that the meeting has a clean start. People aren't bringing with them the five other conversations that they were having on the way from their last meeting and then in the bathroom and then in the kitchen and they're bringing all of that in and there's Mm. a lot of kind of uh, chaos and flurry and then what are we really talking about? And it's more like, no, let's all stop for one minute, one good minute, (laughs) and let us leave everything that is... Behind that doesn't need to be here. Let us leave that all outside the door. Center ourselves, really. Take a few beautiful breaths. Appreciate this opportunity that we have, which is to be with each other and to work together and uh, listen to each other. And we'll start the meeting in a, in a minute. And Oof. then there's just silence. And... I notice that it helps me feel quite a bit more grounded when the meeting begins, and it often helps us be quite a bit more efficient as well. Hmm. That's great. Um, You
0: spoke at the Wisdom 2.0 conference, or or, you may have spoken there a couple of times. I was reading some blogs that people wrote about hearing you. And one of something that really struck a few people was this statement you made that the most important connection with technology that we have is the one we have with ourselves or the most important connection you have with technology is the one with yourself. And I want to know what you meant by that.
1: Hmm. I don't really remember, to be honest with (laughs) you, quite that, quite that statement, uh, I, what, what I remember when I um, spoke at the Wisdom 2.0 conference for the very first time is that I was really trying, and I'm still trying, to uh, work with my mobile device as a spiritual practice tool mm. because I'm uh, quite an addict to relating with the, the my mobile device, meaning I'm constantly on it. I'm on it at inappropriate times. And it's one of the clearest mirrors to me of the way that I have uh, uh, overly invested myself in accomplishing things and being connected with other people and making stuff happen. It's this huge mirror. It's like a billboard. It's so obvious to me. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, so now the universe has given me a new spiritual practice tool, which is to ask myself when I'm uh, engaged in, uh, uh, you know, overly checking voicemails and emails, when there's really something else at hand, like a person who uh, I would like to be relating with, who needs my attention. What am I doing? And why am I doing this? Uh What is actually going on inside me right now? And what I've seen is that I'm often feeling uh, slightly agitated inside, meaning just slightly concerned about something or slightly paranoid about something or slightly worried about something or just slightly something that's not peaceful. Yeah. And that it by getting involved in, you know, okay, I'm going to, you know, text this, do this, whatever, that it, oh, okay, now I don't feel quite so tense. And so instead... Until you push send and then you have to get tense again. (laughs) Yeah, and then wait for the next thing, whatever. So instead it's like, just don't do that. Put Mm. it down and work with what's happening in your body in that moment and actually use this as a self-investigation opportunity.
0: Hmm. And is that working? Is that a good discipline? It is. It's great. No, you're kidding me. I'm practicing all day long. (laughs) All right, <laughs> you know, people often ask me um, what was the most amazing interview you had, or you know, what was the interview you learned the most from. And of course, of course, if I sit down and think about it, I can come up with a few. I can come up with some high points, but really, my answer usually is. Uh it's the last person I talk to because you know my life you know because I listen for a living and do these conversations for a living, there's a cumulative conversation and like you you know I'm involved in this stuff as well and I and I wonder and I don't know if that's true for you I mean it's it's kind of a roundabout way of asking um what's what's been coming up on your mind lately in your conversations in your interactions with teachers you know what are what are you What are you chewing on and working on in this realm of Mm. what it means to be human and what it means to have a spiritual life?
1: Mm. Well, interestingly, uh, just um, this season, Sounds True's launched this 24-part series called The Self-Acceptance Project. And we put The Self-Acceptance Project together, so it's 24 interviews with people about this question of how can we learn to be more kind and compassionate towards ourselves even when difficult things are happening and when things don't seemingly go our way or we feel ashamed about something that we said or did. And this topic came up for me because one of the things that I saw was that often people who have been meditating for a long time or even people who have been working with a therapist for a long time there was still this place where so many of us seemed to get stuck, which is I I know that I'm supposed to be being nice to myself right now, but I'm not doing it. I'm just not doing it. And there's nothing you can say that's going to help me figure this out. And I was like, I want to really dig into this. What is it? What is it? And is there a way that people could really be educated? in self compassion and self kindness and self acceptance, and doing this series it 's been wonderful because i 've learned a lot of things and it 's helped me a lot, and I think it 's helped listeners a lot so that was one of the current questions i 've been chewing on mm-hmm. uh, How do we increase our our self acceptance and you know and
0: i did I did pick up on that i didn 't know if that would be your answer, but i, I that jumped out at me perhaps because it 's also a topic for me and and also I think you 're right it 's bubbling up it 's out there um, and but there's nuance to the way you're talking about that, right? And and that's important too. That that compassion towards yourself is not the same thing as self-esteem, right? Or I think you, you were you were talking about Pema Chodron that, that you know that there's a link between gentleman gentleness in oneself and confidence towards the world. Mm. But somehow we turn those kinds of things into opposites or we or we merge things like self esteem and self compassion that in fact don't go yeah. together.
1: Yeah I mean Kristen Neff, who's written a book on self compassion mm-hmm. and uh, was one of the participants in our self acceptance project, she's the one who really, I think, for me at least, drew this distinction between self compassion and self esteem and that Uh, she said the challenge with the self-esteem movement is, you know, we have to be unique and fabulous and great, and we have to be above average. But, of course, you know, and she said this, how can we all be above average? That just mathematically doesn't make any sense. We can't all be above average. So that when we're talking about self-esteem, it actually uh, increases the pressure that we have on ourselves to be, you know, super wonderful.
0: And to not be compassionate towards ourselves, as we really are.
1: Yeah. But this idea of self compassion is more like, you know, whatever's happening, even if I, you know, spill this beverage all over myself or uh, don't answer your questions as brilliantly as I wish I did or whatever, I can actually, in an unconditional way, regardless, I can find a way to be with how I'm feeling. So, once again, this is being with the physical sensations that are in the body. And often when we feel a sense of shame, or we don't feel good about ourselves, the physical sensations in our body, or, you know, we feel like throwing up, we feel terrible. Mm -hmm. And so how can we actually, instead of then bouncing off that terrible feeling inside and, you know, shoving 20 donuts or, you know, playing however many video games or whatever people do, how can we actually be with ourselves, be with those feelings, tolerate them, Accept them and then take it even further, which is find some way to be kind and soothing and gentle with ourselves. And, uh, you know, that's just been so helpful and important to me. Kristen Neff talked about how you can actually like pat your own arm or touch (laughs) your heart or touch your face and that something is released in the chemistry of the body When we actually learn to be soothing to ourselves in that way, Mm. and so here's the truth, Krista. You know, I run around now, and I like take my right arm and pat (laughs) and pet and soothe my left forearm, and I really calm myself down, and it's very, very helpful. Yeah, Uh, it's helpful to me too. Thank
0: you. (laughs) Um, I met you for for the first time in person. Uh, at a At a conference, and you uh were telling me about this new project, the wake up festival and I think it is a new thing you're doing right that it's a new yeah. new venture and I was very uh struck by the energy and you know i, I mean I, I I remember this so vividly i didn 't know you we had a very short conversation, but you talked about this discovery that had come through that festival or had been deepened through that festival of that joy and a kind of full-bodied pleasure are part of the spiritual life. So tell me about that.
1: Yeah. Well, I think in a lot of the meditation training I've done, there's been an emphasis uh, more on a type of um, boot camp approach. And, you know, that's been uh, tremendously useful in learning to sit in meditation for long periods of time. And it's been so useful in terms of this tolerating of difficult physical experiences and being able to sit with it and eventually see that it will pass. So when it came time for Sounds True to put on our very first wake-up festival, I had this question inside, which is, I know that people can transform through deep, intensive Meditation retreats, but a festival come on, how much real transformation can happen in an environment where people aren 't pushed up against an edge like that where you 're you know sitting from six thirty in the morning till nine p m at night? What can happen in a festival where you 're chanting and you 're dancing and you 're exploring different kinds of things? but what I discovered in myself and I received. Uh, letters and emails from people as well, is that for some of us, actually one of the thresholds we have and one of the ways that we hold ourselves back from the fullness of life is that we keep ourselves bound up and unavailable for unbridled pleasure the pleasure of chanting for three, four, five hours, the pleasure of dancing uh, out under the stars, uh, the pleasure of uh, connecting with other people. And, and, And that really celebration is one of the ways that we can break out of often our standard way of being, which can often be quite tight. Yeah. And quite kind of held in and repressed, if you will. And that having this opportunity to let that go and actually say, you know, it's safe for me to be with other people and declare my love of life and my uh, love of the open and expressed human heart, that that can actually push us into new places beyond our regular boundaries. And that's what I discovered at the Wake Up Festival.
0: <laughs> um, it makes me think of um, a conversation I had once with a, a sociologist who is a, a, a sociologist of, of charismatic religious experience and also herself a charismatic Catholic. And, you know, that, that phenomenon you described of being uptight and repressed, and, you know, is, is especially true <laughs> in a lot of our religious rituals. But, you know, Western Prist- Protestant Christianity Um Became a very chin up experience, and she was saying that she felt like the reason charismatic and Pentecostal traditions are growing so quickly and uh, rapidly as they are around the world is that it's full body, it's full body spirituality. And, and she pointed out that that across human history, religious ex- religious um, rituals and experiences were cathartic; they were about dancing and singing and laughing and crying and and being with other people. And that somehow, especially in this sphere of religion, that was lost.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this year at the Wake Up Festival, we'll be having a cosmic mass with Matthew Fox. (laughs) And it's something I've never participated in, but I'm quite excited. And so, you know, we'll have over a thousand people working with Awakening the Heart. That's the theme of the cosmic mass. And it will happen in different phases where we'll work with the broken heart, the forgiving heart, uh, uh, the creative heart, the devotional heart, and it will be done through singing and dance and offering and interactive altars and poetry and there'll be a video DJs as well as music DJs and the whole thousand-person cosmic mass will take over three hours as this group participatory ritual. And it's something that I'm really excited to explore and see what it's like when we're bringing people together, many people who will never have experienced anything like this, but will come, I think, very open-minded and open-hearted. What's it like to pray and explore together like that uh, in, in a group experiment? But
0: I have to ask you, and I think you might be, like me, an introvert and uh, an introvert who loves people. And uh, I wonder if even a few years ago you would have imagined that you could get excited about an experience like that.
1: Well, you're right. I am, <laughs> I am an introvert. Uh, and, you know, some of what I've seen is that even as I say that to you, quote-unquote, I'm an introvert, you know, I, I think that I put myself in that box. And at this point, I don't even know anymore. Mm-hmm. And I and I want to open it up a bit because uh, I think sometimes we can label ourselves a this or a that, you know, whether it's something about our Enneagram type or this kind of woman or this kind of man. And uh, I'm interested in actually opening that and just exploring. And what I notice is that, I actually really enjoy uh, being with other people in deep spaces. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what has me excited about the cosmic mass.
0: Yeah. You've been, uh, you've used the phrase recently, spiritual friendship. I really like that. I like that notion. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, in a sense, you and I in this conversation are exploring. A spiritual friendship mm-hmm. and if we were in the same room together we would be looking in each other's eyes we're talking about something that ideas that we both care really deeply about we're communing with each other in a certain sense and there's this idea of encouraging the person to go into places inside of themselves that they might not otherwise feel safe to go and visit because of the space that's created between spiritual friends and there's a a, a love that's there and a, a sense of uh, being co-journeyers if you will mm-hmm. and uh, um, Uh, I think some of it, this gap that I've been describing, I think some of what can happen in spiritual friendship is that we rest in the gap with other people and in that our souls touch in a way that's not possible in conventional exchanges and that that touching at that nonverbal level Um, It can just be so important. It becomes an inner touchstone uh, that I know in my own life has been so important for me with certain people. I mean, even as you're asking me that question, I see the eyes and the, the face of people who are deep spiritual friends to me. And I know I can call on them in my inner world. And their face is right there. And it gives me so much. And I know that I have experiences with people where they feel that I'm a, a spiritual friend for them like that. And that's a type of touchstone as well. Yeah, you know, when we first started
0: speaking, you and I asked you about your, the spiritual background of your childhood, you, you talked about a feeling yeah. of loneliness. and And one thing with this content that I create, and I, I know it's true of your content as well. One thing people say to me that is so, so gratifying and humbling is I, I listen to this and I feel less alone. Yeah. And it touches on that. But And it, it's about living in this world with all its complexity and its beauty and its terror and its excitement. and, And then so many of us are, are looking for deep places, right? We are asking these big questions and we are reflecting, but it's sometimes hard. It's not always evident. It's not always on the surface of our, of our cultural life that, that there are so many of us, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I think what, what uh, you're, you're pointing to is this longing and I would even say need to connect. And that's something I know is so core, So fundamental inside me is to feel like I uh, am literally part of the fabric of life, that there's a sense of belonging and connection. And uh, that's what I think uh, spiritual friendship can be about. I think that's what deep listening to the lives of great teachers and mystics. There's this quality where we, even across the centuries, we connect, our hearts connect. And it's like they're still available. Their teachings and ideas are still available. And uh, I know for me that's what makes my heart feel connected in the world. Hmm.
0: I want to read um, something you wrote in a couple of years ago. Um I just found it very stunning. We, we, you wrote. We need to be careful. We never sell the spiritual journey as something that is easy, quick, formulaic, and without challenge. As Parker Palmer says, there is no resurrection without death. As I see it, our real job—it sounds true—is to communicate the great glory of dying. <laughs> Talk a little bit about that. It's a really countercultural statement. Okay. <laughs>
1: Well, I think one of the things, you know, I've seen working at Sounds True and working with our marketing department is they always want to, like, promise the benefits, Tammy. Promise the benefits. What are the benefits here? That's what people want. That's what people buy. And I'm like, okay, what are the benefits? The benefits of the spiritual journey. Yes, fulfillment, connection, boundless joy. But what about the fact that the journey may ask you to give up everything that you thought you were, introvert, extrovert, who knows what you'll be asked to surrender and let go of. Who knows what relationships or job configurations are actually keeping you out of your integrity and may need to be let go of. What unfelt... Emotions and experiences are actually now waiting in darkness that need to be felt in order for the wholeness of the path to be revealed. All of that has to be embraced. And, of course, the marketing people don't want to talk about that. (laughs) And the problem is that then people who enter the spiritual path, they think there's something wrong They think there's something that they're doing wrong when they enter a place of difficulty. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's encountering some experiences that are really hard that are uh, nonverbal experiences from very early in our life that we've never wanted to go into. And suddenly there they are. And actually... The spiritual alchemical process of growth and transformation, it's working. Mm. That's why we're encountering this material. Mm. But we think we've gone off the path because we bought what the marketers told us, which was that this was going to be some three-step easy path. And so it's a, something I feel so passionate about because people think that they're off track when actually the difficult material coming up is the journey of wholeness, it is mm. the journey of liberation so so that 's why I, I wrote that statement. What if our our job is to actually help people embrace everything that's happening and feel it and then let go and let there be the space then for new life or the resurrection for new birth to come mm. into being. Mm.
0: We just have a couple minutes. I'm just going to ask you a couple more questions. I I just quoted Parker Palmer there, who's a Quaker author and educator. Wonderful, wonderful person. Um, And it strikes me that you started uh, those decades ago with Sounds True, pretty much focused on Buddhist tradition, Eastern tradition. It's interesting again if we come back to this idea of how our cultural encounter with these ideas has changed. There's been a, there have been a lot of um, people rooted in Western traditions, the majority traditions here, who've who've discovered uh, meditation, mindfulness, Buddhism, and I, I wonder, do you feel like you've made maybe a bit of a, a move in the diff- in the opposite direction of, of started starting rooted in those traditions of meditation and Buddhism, and then reaching out more and more to people from what we would call Western spiritual traditions?
1: You know, in my heart, I've always felt like a universal cosmic citizen, if you will. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I think in my own life, I found a depth of practice within the Buddhist tradition. And that's why I went. Down that avenue and have been in that avenue in terms of my own training. But interestingly, in interviewing people from every different spiritual tradition, and of course, people who don't have a tradition and people who are energy healers or dancers and poets, I've come to see that people can be wildly awakened to the fullness of the human heart through. Any different method through so many different methods and mm. so many different paths. So, I have a great appreciation for the universality, and yet I think that each one of us has to have a willingness when we find something that really works for us and that's native to us to go with it all the way mm. to its super root. We have to be willing to make that commitment and dive all the way in.
0: Mm. Um this has been really great. I is there anything I haven't asked you about or anything you want to just say or elaborate on that that's come
1: up? Uh. Nothing occurs to me at the moment. <laughs> but I want to make sure that you feel that you've gotten everything um, uh, no, everything I, you
0: want uh, and need. Uh, I, no, I do. I, j- I just wondered if there's anything I haven't, if I haven't created enough space for you, <laughs> you to come in. I feel like you have uh, okay. completely. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, just, uh, you know, I, one maybe just one last question. I'm. We 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 recently did it. We've done a show on uh, T.R. de Chardin, this 20th century paleo- Jesuit paleontologist who... Who had an idea of spiritual evolution that the next stage of evolution would be spiritual, and you know, I think many of your of the authors and and teachers you work with, Eckhart Tolle certainly talk about a flowering of human consciousness. And I've I've read you being a bit skeptical about that kind of generalization, and and I am too. Um, and yet, uh, you know, you could look at what you've done and created, and. The universe of of energy and and excitement and curiosity around what you do, as a kind of expression of some kind of evolution going on. How do you, how do you think about that?
1: I, I think the reason that my view has been skeptical is that I feel like the question is just bigger than i can uh know it feels so mysterious to me mm-hmm. i mean sounds true as a small company what we're doing in terms of the number of people who are accessing and are interested in the kind of conversation you and i are having right now in many ways it's it's influential yes but it's also small And there are so many things that are happening in the world that uh, are so terrible and are clearly coming from such a low level of human consciousness in the way people are treating each other. And, you know, the whole question of evolution is happening at such a large, I would say, cosmic scale that I have to say, to be honest with you, it feels beyond my ability to, to really know and weigh in. Here's the only thing I can say, really, which is I am a gajillion million percent committed to helping with the spiritual evolution of humanity. I will give it absolutely everything I have, my entire life and energy, and I hope that we are evolving uh, rapidly enough for there to be a huge amount of change in the decades to come, but I just don't know.
0: Yeah. There was an interesting, um, somebody pointed out to me uh, who was talking about TR, if you, that you can, oh, what is it? You can map, you can you can look at a map of, um, Of uh, uh, I'm not going to be able to do this right, but anyway, you, you, there's a way to look at a map of the world right now, and, and it looks like the teenage brain in terms of you know that you, that if if we are evolving, if we're maturing, you know that it's that we're in that that phase of adolescence where you have just tremendous promise and tremendous tumult going on all at the same time, <laughs> and so that perhaps that's a stage which I found I found hopeful to think about. Well, I have yeah. loved talking to you. Um, it's been just great, and um, I look forward to putting this on the air, and we'll communicate with you about when that's happening, and. Um we might have some questions. Um and we know where to find you, right?
1: Yeah. Okay. Well, well it's really it's it's, it's been an honor and a privilege. And so I'm I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank uh-huh. you for including me in your well, program.
0: Well, I'm happy and um well so we'll we'll be com- in communication again soon. Sounds good? Thank you.
1: Okay. okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. God bless. Yeah, okay, bye-bye. <laughs>